You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm your co-host from BleacherReport.com, Chad Dundas. And joining me, as always, from MMA Junkie and USA Today, it is your friend and mine, Mr. Ben Folks. Ben, how you doing this week? I'm doing fantastic. You want to know why? I'm just going to take a wild guess that it has something to do with Missoula City League co-rec hockey starting up again. Yeah, that's it. Was that it? Did I nail it? Tomorrow night, the fall season begins. You know, Chad, it's been said that to give anything less than 100% is sacrificing the gift. And I will not sacrifice the gift. I will give 100%. That I believe. I believe that you will give 100% on game night. I believe that you will give 100% to your hockey team here while we're recording the podcast. I believe that for the next several months, uh, your entire focus will be on Missoula City League Co-Rec hockey. That is true. You know what I don't understand, though? In the... In the winter league, that's like the team names are just like local businesses who sponsor the team. But in the fall and the spring, it doesn't work like that. They just have like generic team names and they kind of use the same team names over and over again. And they just randomly assign you a team name. One name that they use all the time. Usually it's stuff like it'll be like Ice Dogs or what Wolverines, whatever. One team name they use every single time. River Kings. The River Kings. River Kings is kind of a cool name. So the... Does that mean like you're king of like an entire river? Like, are you king of the adjacent land that goes with the river? Are you just king of the river and like from its source, like all the way to where it feeds into the ocean? It makes me envision like a barefoot guy on a raft in a pair of like ratty cut off denim shorts. Maybe like he's got one of those. Okay. He's, he's guiding the boat with one of those long staffs right. that you push through the water. And he's just, he's looking out over the, the rapids and he's thinking, gang of the river, gang of the river. <laughs> that's, that's your idea of a, a river monarch right there? Yeah, that's what, it, that's what it brings to mind to me. And when it floods, is he super happy because it means the empire is just spreading? I think he's just uh, happy to find a warm, dry place to sleep at night. It's kind of not really much of a king when you think about it. Ben, uh, UFC 228 this past weekend, heck of a show. Uh, by all accounts, everyone enjoyed it. I enjoyed it. Here we are, co-main event podcast. Going to wrap that up, start looking ahead a little bit to uh, this weekend's event over on the fightpass.com from Moscow, Russia. How about that? Probably not a ton of talk about that on this week's show. We're going to spend most of the time breaking down the stuff that happened at UFC 228. Uh, do you want to tell the kids how to get down with the Patreon if they want to sign up to reward you for weekly updates about the Missoula City League Corec? Hockey scene. Well, I'm thinking about starting a separate Patreon for that. Uh, the Patreon for this here podcast, however, you go to patreon.com slash co-main event. You get down with all kinds of cool stuff like the uh, live video streaming version of this here podcast, which is going on right now. If you don't want to wait for just the audio version to get uploaded later, you become a patron. You jump on there. You join us every Monday or so at around one o'clock in the one true time zone. Plus, you get a lot of other fun stuff. If we took all the money for a given month that -hmm. comes in through the Patreon and we said we were going to pay it to you. Would you allow Jessica Andrade to punch you in the face? One time we're going to film it. We'll put it up on the, uh, 
on the Patreon website. Just so just one month. That's all I get. Yeah, no, not the whole not the whole uh, uh, war chest. Certainly <laughs> we need that. But uh, huh. one month. Big right hand from Jessica Andrade, like the one she landed on Carolina Kovalkiewicz this past weekend. I feel like I could negotiate a better deal. I don't. I don't. I don't this feel like I want the wanna, best deal you're gonna get. No, I don't want to just jump at the first offer. I think. I think you're gonna you're gonna move around a little bit on this whole one month thing. So and we got a we got a holdout on our hands, is what you're telling me. I mean, one month, I'll take the left hand. It's left hand, deal, one man. month. See this? We're negotiating, man. We're negotiating. We got music again this week from our guy, the Fifth Element, a music producer from Fort Worth, Texas. If you like what you hear from him on the show. You can check him out over on Twitter at the Fifth Element, at Facebook.com slash the Fifth Element, or SoundCloud.com slash the Fifth Element Official. Those of you who are regular listeners to the show know that that's the word the with an A. The, the Fifth Element. Three rounds as usual this week in the Co Main Event Podcast. In round number one, after a lot of drama, Darren Till successfully made weight last Friday for his UFC 228 fight against Tyron Woodley. And then. Well, really, that was about it. And in round number two, is the UFC the only pro sports league that will go to bat for you if you test positive for PEDs, are convicted of domestic violence, or get arrested on the day of your fight, but will cut you like a dying vine if you have to go to the hospital because your team is afraid that you might fucking die? And in round number three, it's an interesting time to be a straw weight. All that plus, are you fucking kidding me and just saying stuff? But first, like we always do about this time... Let's do a little bit of listener mail. Listener mail. First piece of listener mail this week comes to us from Slick Williams. Nice. He writes, shut it down. We're done here. That was the best UFC card we have any reason to hope for. Diego Sanchez and Jim Miller both won. Countless new prospects did work and looked bodied up doing it. Tyron Woodley fought like he wanted a title shot, not like he wanted to avoid losing. It was the perfect UFC card. We will never feel this happy after a night of fisticuffs ever again. Shut it down. Discourse, please. Well, I think we learned something about the psychology of Slick Williams that when confronted with something good, just wants to stop right there. Go out on a high note. I understand it. <laughs> Forever. He's afraid that uh, next week's Mark Hunt versus Alexi Olenek main event may not live up. Well. To the standard set by UFC 220. I feel confident in saying Slick Williams is right about that. That you will not get the same kind of excitement out of that one as you did here. And I wonder, though, how much of the excitement over UFC 228 is that we were surprised it turned out as great as it did. It didn't look like it was going to knock our socks off on paper. Well, I think, yeah, I mean, there is a virtue in lowered expectations in some ways. You feel like UFC 228 uh, was probably going to be just fine, and then it turns out to be a super crazy event where two dudes get knee-barred, and uh, like Slick Williams says, a couple of old standbys and Jim Miller and Diego Sanchez both, both pull off wins. Uh, Tyron Woodley has a great performance against Darren Till. It's just a fun night of fights. Uh, and so, yeah, I think like coming into it thinking that it was probably going to be just fine and then having it be really, really good probably, uh, helps us put on the rose colored glasses when we're thinking about UFC 228. The thing that is interesting to me, Ben, is how often it feels like in this sport now, when we get a really good card, a really fun card like UFC 228, how often it feels like, man, we needed this. We needed one to like, to pull us up a little bit. Remind us why we're all here. Yeah. Well, and that's the thing that keeps you coming back, right? Is that every once in a while, 
you get reminded there's nothing like a good fight event when it's good. And when it's bad, there's nothing quite like a really bad one. I, I mean, this was different in that it didn't have the that excitement that a really big fight can give you beforehand where, like, you have such anticipation for it. I'm sure, like, the Nurmagomedov Conor McGregor event is going to be that way. But this one had the one where you sit down, you don't know exactly what you're going to get, and you get a bunch of crazy results where you find yourself going like, all right, you know what? It's the the unpredictability of it that kind of keeps me sitting down for these things over and over again on one Saturday night after another. Like That's a different kind of feel. And it seems like that's one that the USA have tried to sell us on for a long time where like people would be like, hey, what the hell is this garbage card that you want $65 for? And the answer would be, well, hey, anything can happen. You don't know. You, sometimes the fights turn out to be really great. And it's like, yeah, okay. Not often enough, it seems. But this one kind of rejuvenated your faith about about that a little bit. One thing I wanted to ask about, though, Slick Williams mentions Diego Sanchez and Jim Miller both won. Yeah. You get a couple old dogs coming back in there. Um, what do you make of those victories? Well, it feels good, it first does. of all, especially to a couple of, of uh, old road dogs like us who've been down these dusty trails a time or two. That's a perfect description of us. You look around, you see Diego Sanchez and Jim Miller, a couple guys about our same age. A couple guys been in the game a long time. We had talked about the week before. We talked last week or, or two weeks ago about the Diego Sanchez versus Craig White fight, about how we thought high propensity, high uh, possibility that we come out of that feeling sad. Right. So simply avoiding that downer is good. Like, you, you, I, I, I'm gonna. I'm prepared to ask you in a moment what your favorite UFC 228 happening was. If there's one moment that stood out to you, but like when you look at it on paper, man, I have to be honest. It really does warm my heart to see Diego Sanchez and Jim Miller both get wins on the same card. I don't know that I would say like that's my favorite moment, but like there's just something about it, and maybe it harkens back to uh, the golden days, the glory days of the UFC. You know, uh, uh, Ultimate Fighter season one. Kind of when everything was was flying high, you get Diego Sanchez winning the the middleweight uh, contract out of that first season. He's the last guy from that crew still kind of out here putting in work. So to see Diego Sanchez come out and get a win is awesome. And I would just say as an addendum to that, it seems like both Diego Sanchez and Jim Miller are good dudes. So like it it feels good to see them succeed. It also feels like there are different circumstances at work. Uh, Jim Miller, I don't know if you heard all his comments afterwards about Lyme disease and it sounds awful. Like I've known a few people who have dealt with Lyme disease and it just keeps like you keep dealing with it over years and years. And for a lot of them, it takes a long time to even just get the correct diagnosis. And that seemed to be what happened with Jim Miller. He didn't realize he'd been bitten by a tick like five years ago. He said in 2015, he had to stop all his strength and conditioning couldn't even lift weights, couldn't do like circuit training or anything because he was so fatigued. He fought three times in 2015 and for him to kind of like get it under control now and then be like, okay, I, I want to go in there and show that I'm better than the last few years because I was dealing with this illness. And with Diego Sanchez, I started to wonder if his win was one of those where it ultimately is maybe a bad thing because it convinces you, I, I can still do this. I I got years left in me of doing this. And we've seen sometimes that that's the the dilemma that keeps people from retiring when they should is because you don't want to go out when you're on a losing streak. You win one, 
You're convinced that you can do it for years. Yeah. I mean, I think Diego Sanchez was going to feel that way no matter what happened. True. Out there last weekend. I'm not going to, uh, I'm not going to undermine this for myself. I'm going to take these good feelings with these two wins from these two veterans and just hang on to them as long as I can because I know the cruel reality of mixed martial arts will slap me in the face before too long. And like, uh, if, if we're, if we're waiting to feel sad for guys sticking around too long, that will happen. You don't need to go looking for the bummers. No, you're, you're pretty sure they'll find you. No, that that's, it's like the one constant in this sport. The one thing that we can depend on at some point, we're going to feel sad because somebody stuck around too long. Okay. So right now, I'm just waving the flag. Just riding the high. What's your favorite moment? That's what I was going to ask you. I hope that you uh, you brainstormed over there since I warned you a couple minutes ago. This is a great event. A lot of crazy stuff happened. If you look back on it, what's the what's the moment that stands out to you? Not necessarily maybe as the most high profile moment, but just like the Ben Folks highlight reel. Well, the uh, the couple of knockouts there. Uh, Abdul Razak Al Hassan's knockout of Nico Price. Yeah. That was crazy. Uh, Jeff Neal's the head kick of Frank Camacho, who somehow had stayed conscious way longer than it seemed like he was going to. Like, those are really memorable moments. Um, I do think, though, in light of all the kind of stuff that came afterwards, maybe Jim Miller's win was the one that is kind of the standout moment for me. Yeah. Uh, I was going to say two dueling knee bars, because it's awesome to have two knee bar victories. Well, especially knee bar from back control. Like yeah, that. yeah, yeah. Uh, and also like maybe the Jessica Andrade knockout of Karolina Kovalkiewicz, which I know we're going to talk about coming up a little bit later in the show, but it's just so rare that at 150, 115 pounds, you see that kind of like one punch KO. Yeah. I think that's one that I'm going to remember well, yeah, moving and, forward. I mean, if we want to mention the, the main event, I mean, I think one great moment is Tyron Woodley getting his black belt and oh, the, yeah. the yeah. look on his face completely changed. Like it seemed like he was kind of a, a subdued reaction to defending the UFC welterweight title. Sure, whatever, like big deal, big hunk of, you know, metal title belt that he's had for a while. Then he gets that little strip of black fabric from Dean Thomas. Yeah. And holy shit, man. Well, and that tells you something about uh, what's what's really going on. Yeah, right? And what does. these guys think is, is real and does. what their day-to-day lives are, who they have uh, loyalty to, et cetera, et cetera. We'll talk about more that more in round number one, but I do want to return to the topic of Tyron Willie Woodley getting his black belt in round number one because uh, – as I tweeted over the weekend, I'm kind of a sucker for pro fighters, dudes who are champions, dudes where you're like, you would think that Tyron Woodley may already be a black belt, yes. given what he has accomplished. <laughs> anyway, we'll come back to that. Uh, next question this week comes to us from David Nolan. He writes, well, guys, Mad Mags looks fucking legit. Yeah. He just completely dominated Brandon Davis in that fight, pulling off some ninja shit with that knee bar. Granted, uh, of his four UFC foes thus far, just two have Wikipedia pages, but I give no fucks. This, the man is exciting as hell to watch, and I will gladly hand over my money for any pay-per-view card he fights on. Does the UFC have a legit superstar, or do we need to pump the brakes until he faces some high-level competition? Please discord, please discourse if you would, please. So double please there in the last line from David Nolan, just to kind of set us up. Yeah, politeness will get you far in That's true. Uh, ben, what do you make of Zabit Magomed Shiropov? Uh, gets, Brandon Davis comes in as a late replacement here. Uh, he was a big time underdog, certainly very game. Brandon Davis, uh, he didn't, you know, embarrass himself. He looked like he belonged out there, looked like he deserved to be there. Uh, but in the end, a Mad Mags gets a showcase fight here. And again, he pulls off that crazy banana split knee bar from the back where when he starts doing it, you're like, what is happening here? And then, oh, it's a knee bar. Awesome. Yeah. Well, I'm going to pump the brakes on Superstar because that is a 
echelon of fame that very few fighters reach, no matter yeah, how good I, they are. I think it depends on what you mean by superstar. True. Is he really fucking good? Yeah. He's really fucking good and just has no real glaring weaknesses, can kind of do it all, and is an exciting fighter to watch. So, yes, I am on board the, this should be fun to see how far he can go. But I do think that at this point, we've already proven that, you know, he can be really dominant against kind of the lower tier of fighters. What can he do against that next tier? Like him calling out Chad Mendes afterwards? As soon as he said that, I was like, okay. Now that's a test I'd be interested in. You go out there and you beat Chad Mendez. Now we have something really, really worth paying attention to there because it kind of seems like we can't watch too many more of these with him because they, they're just proving what we already know and suspect. And sure, I mean, they, they wanted to have the Yair Rodriguez fight, so that one fell out. They make the best of it with Brandon Davis here, but it's like him going out there and dominating Brandon Davis who took the fight on short notice. That doesn't tell me anything about him that I didn't already know. Yeah, Chad Mendez, number five overall, officially on the UFC featherweight rankings. I think there would have been a time where Zabit Magomed Sharapov calling out Chad Mendez at this stage of his career would have seemed a little bit outlandish, but it's kind of like the perfect time to catch Chad Mendez if you are the up-and-coming 27-year-old Mad Mag just because of the... Uh, the PED suspension, Mendez had, had been off the radar for a while, but then comes back and, and gets a big win. So you can see that he's still dangerous, but he's not like the uh, championship level Chad Mendez of old. So, you know, it's a, it's a good fight, I think, uh, if, you, if you wanted to try to book that one. Uh, and you're right, we're going to uh, we're gonna have to start seeing Zabit against known names, against at least mid-level 145-pound competition uh, so I'm, I'm just looking at the list, frankly. Uh, you got Chad Mendez, Jeremy Stevens, Cub Swanson, Josh Emmett, and Mirsad Bektik, uh, all right there at between five and nine. And any of those matchups, I think, would be would be just fine for me, anyway. And well, and now it seems like we're getting to the point where maybe there's enough hype building behind Zabit where the people who might be approached about that fight won't feel like, hey, there's too much to risk and nothing really to gain. Because before it was like, he's a super tough guy who nobody knows who he is. So, yeah, you, I can see why you don't want to fight him just because it seems like, you know, it, it, you lose to him and you take a tumble. You beat him. People don't appreciate what an accomplishment it is. Now maybe that's starting to change. And I love the moment where he looks into the camera and says, Chad Mendez, let's go. And the interpreter feels like, you know what? He was paid to do a job. He's going to do the job and go ahead and just make sure we all heard it. Says, Chad Mendez, let's go. It was English, buddy. I mean, we all got it. But thanks. Uh, I, the thing that is, and I'm not, I don't think I'm telling anybody anything they don't already know here, but like the thing that is super interesting and exciting about this guy is the way that he mixes up the striking and grappling. You know, uh, you got a, a, a top level fighter like Habib Nurmagomedov still primarily a grappler. Like he's going to go out there, take you down, work a pace that absolutely breaks you and just drop bombs once he gets you on the canvas. Zabid uh, Magomed Sharapov, like he can kind of do it all. He seems like his all around skill set is really impeccable at this point. Uh, and at only 27 years old, you know, the guy has somewhere between five and 10 years of being in his athletic prime still. So like one of the more exciting prospects to come, come around in a while. Uh, and you just hope that he proves to be up to the challenge once you start getting him in there against that higher level competition. But like strictly from like a skill set, a skill set standpoint, uh, 
it's it's hard not to love it. What's going on there? It reminds me of something that uh, Conan Silvera said once when I was out there at uh, American Top Team, where he was saying the really good fighters. It's like being fluent in several languages, where you're so fluent that you could mix it up mid sentence. You could start out in English, switch to uh, Portuguese, switch to French, all in the same sentence, and it challenges the other person. Are you fluent enough to keep up with me without falling up behind in the conversation? And he was saying, you know, that's those guys can can put that kind of pace on other people and they start falling behind and you fall behind a little bit and you can't catch up against a guy like that. So, yeah, he, he kind of reminds me of that analogy, the way that it's such a, a fluid style where there's no noticeable transition between one to the other. Uh, next question this week comes to us from Toby Larone, which I believe is an inside joke of some kind, but I don't fully understand the reference. So... Is it like if you say it fast, it sounds like you say you're saying that you are an idiot or something? Yeah, well, if you say it fast, it sounds like the name of a candy. Toblerone. So I don't know. I don't know what's going on here. It's a shit candy, too. Just what? Toblerone. The fuck out of here. Overrated, you're saying? Now you're talking about raised expectations. Toblerone. Waste of time. Okay, wow. So you just, you're just over there treating Toblerone like it's the Fletch of candies. Fletch movie of candies. Yeah. Well, and the coffee crisp was the flesh book of candies. So there I said it. Wow. Strong takes over here. Didn't know didn't know you were going to be spitting this kind of fire out Just getting today. started. Anyway, he writes, I'll apologize in advance for the poorly worded email as I was too busy eating shit in the wild to attend English class. Huh. I'm aware that it's way too early to speculate what happens in the aftermath of the Conor Habib fight, but let's just say McGregor makes it out of the other side without being mauled to death. Do we end up with McGregor versus GSP in a title fight at 165 pounds? Not a bad start to a long overdue weight class, while at the same time selling us a shit ton of pay-per-views. It would also crown the first champ, 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 no matter who wins. Uh, with both fighters stating how much legacy fi- a legacy fight means to them, uh, do you think that this would be one of the rare occasions where it's a win-win situation for everyone involved? Please discourse. Uh, is it me, or are people starting to treat the creation of a 165-pound weight class as inevitable at this yeah. point? Yes. Yes, it's not just you. Okay. I was going to say, I, like, if everybody is 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 vertical and taking nourishment and healthy, Taking nourishment, okay. I think you're going to get Conor McGregor versus George St. Pierre. There's just too much money to be made uh, to not do that. Whether or not it is the beginning of a new weight class at 165 pounds, I think is putting the cart before the horse in some ways. Like I don't know that we were that that that's something that's going to happen. But uh, if you know uh, George St. Pierre's trainer up there at, at TriStar uh, has talked a lot about how you know when they were talking about George moving up to fight Anderson Silva at 185 Faraz Zahabi was like I would rather have him go down to 155 because he's not even really that big at 170 so like if George thinks he can make the lightweight limit I think you're doing it there I don't think you're creating a whole new weight class uh just so somebody can become the champ 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 right Uh, and I wouldn't say that it seems like when I say that people are treating us as, as if it's inevitable that it's because they want to make this specific fight. But it does seem like I hear this idea thrown around more like, hey, we're going to start doing the weight classes every 10 pounds, just create like more weight classes. That idea seems to be gaining some momentum. And I don't hate it, especially if we are concerned about weight cutting and all that, except I do feel that 
people imagine it as more of a problem solver than it actually will be. Because you know how fighters are. There'll just be a bunch of guys who be like, okay, so there's a new weight class that I can kind of irresponsibly cut down to. Right. Yeah, I don't know that it necessarily solves any kind of weight cutting problems because I believe, as you said, you know how fighters are. There's going to be a dude who can make uh, 165. And because he can make 165, he's like, shit, I can make 155. It's only 10 more pounds. Let's yeah. do this. Uh and I agree with you. Like, I think it's a good move if that's what you're going to do. If you're going to go basically 135 to 205 and have, or 125, I'm sorry, to 205 and have a weight class every 10 pounds, I'm all for it. Let's do it. Let's, let's do that. I don't know that it makes sense to me to just make a 165 pound weight class without having that huge kind of like tectonic shift in the rest of the divisions. Right. Well, which would be the more garbage fire of a division to result from that? 195? Or 205 after you create a 195. Yeah, God, I don't know. I mean, I suppose that there's some worry that since you don't have any talent at that heavyweight in 205 anyway, that like those would be kind of like wasteland divisions. But like maybe there's a possibility that you get more competition at, at those divisions because you would have some big middleweights who would be outsized at 205 but think that they could compete at 195. So maybe you would have more more guys meeting in the middle. But you also have a situation where if you create all those new weight classes, like people are going to be hopping around in terms of weight all the time. Yeah. Like you basically have just created a free for all. Like, I don't know if you could even have a credible UFC official rankings. Not that the UFC official rankings are credible now, but like speaking of shutting shit down, you might as well shut that down if you're going to have, you know, 165, 175, 155, because dudes are just going to be all over the map. On that. Yeah. All right, let's do one more and then we will uh, move on to the round portion of the show. Last question this week from the Cheeseburger Walrus. He writes, besides Nikki Thrills and the Super Samoan Mark Hunt, I'm having a tough time convincing myself to watch this Saturday afternoon in the One True Time Zone main card. Convince me or will you be recording it and throwing it on the TV once the kids are fast asleep? Well, you know what I think we'll probably both be doing? I think we'll probably both be at the the wedding of our friend. Yeah, we're attending a, the wedding of a of a friend of ours on Saturday, so we won't be around for this uh, fight night event from Moscow that is going to be on the fightpass.com. Going to get out of town, sleep in a cabin. How you like that? That's right. But yeah, uh, I'm totally going to DVR this and catch up on it later. You're not going to DVR shit because it's on Fight Pass. That's right. Too bad there's no way to circle back and ever watch anything that was on Fight Pass. <laughs> no, I'm actually really looking forward to watching it that way. I mean, but... Honestly, the idea that, you know, you have a Saturday afternoon fight car where there's not a whole lot really selling it, again, aside from Mark Hunt and Nikki Thrills, which, you know, I'll watch those guys anytime. But the best way to take a fight car like that and convince me to get into it is to put it on Fight Pass on a Saturday afternoon because it's on Fight Pass. I know it's going to move quickly, uh, that there won't be a whole lot of fat on the thing. And Saturday afternoon, I think, is actually like... An underutilized time. I'm, you, you go up against college football a little bit, but hey, like I, I'm guessing that the the Venn diagram of like Alabama football fans and Nikki Thrills, like Nikita Krilov hardcore fans, is not a whole lot of overlap between yeah. those two. Yeah. So maybe that's not such a big concern. But like I, I like the kind of lesser, lower wattage events being presented that way because I'm like, all right, hey, as long as you don't ask me to sit through a bunch of bullshit to watch this bullshit, I can get down with that bullshit. The most exciting thing happening here 
is the return of Nikki Thrills, right? Nikita Krilov coming back to the UFC after his successful run through fights, Fight Nights Global back there at home. Uh, at the time that it happened, I think we talked about it on the show, that it seemed strange that the UFC was letting a guy like Krilov go uh, since he, he seemed like a, a pretty big prospect in a light heavyweight division where they need all the help that they can get. Uh, now he returns. He's going to take on Jan Blokovic, who is on a three-fight win streak. Uh, the main event here, Mark Hunt versus Alexi Olenek, we all know what we want to see there. Uh, to me, like the, the, the most interesting thing is this co-main event, 205-pound fight between Blokovic and Krilov. Yeah? Yay or nay? Yeah. Uh, I mean, as far as like actual divisional relevance, yeah, sure. I, I, that's, that's definitely it. Um, and when you say you, we all know what we want to see from Mark Hunt versus Alexei Olenek, I assume you mean Mark Hunt lands a big punch, drops him, tries to go in for the finish. Alexei Olenek uh, locks up uh, the Ezekiel choke from the bottom. That's what you're looking for? Yeah, that's what the, the Brazilian jiu-jitsu nerds want to see. And like, if, he, if that happened, would that be his... Third is Eagle Choke in the UFC? Uh, let's see. I know he's got at least He's got a bunch two, outside the UFC. And he's got a bunch in his career. It's kind of his thing. Yeah, I think it would be his third in the UFC. Well, that would be incredible uh, if that happened. I wouldn't sneeze at that. I was saying that, like, I think, moreover, people want to see the big fella. Knock somebody into the dark lands. Walk off knockout. Yeah. For Mark Hunt. Uh, you know, and this is for a fight pass event overseas in Moscow. You got some interesting stuff happening here, you know, uh, the return of Nikita Krilov, like we said, that heavyweight main event, another heavyweight fight with Andre Arlovsky, uh, in it. I hope that whoever is calling this thing, whoever is play by play man in the booth for the UFC is doing his homework. <laughs> have you seen this list of names? Well, it'll probably be John Gooden, right? And he does do his homework. What I wondered is, is the the local crowd, like the Moscow crowd that's used to some of those uh, Fight Nights Global events, are they going to show up to this thing, a UFC card that's just going to proceed the way UFC uh, cards do, and be super disappointed with the lack of showmanship? Are they going to be like They're looking up looking to the ceiling? Looking around for the metal metallic robot spider. Yeah, where, where is, is the is lady it? in the spider costume hanging from the ceiling singing everybody's walkout music? Oh, you mean they didn't do that? This is bullshit. I want my money back. Whose mom is going to show up and do a swords demonstration? <laughs> Some sword dancing. Uh, you got Peter Yan on this card. You got Rustam Habalov. You got Merbek Sumanov. Simon Size. I messed Tyson that up. Tysonov. Yeah, nailed it. Nailed it. Uh so if if you got your Saturday afternoon free and you want nothing more out of life than to sit down and watch the fightpass.com, you could probably do worse than checking out the UFC over there in Moscow. And if you have to circle back on Sunday, it's not like it's going to be like super urgent business for your life to find out what the hell happened. Here. I believe uh, the Connecticut blue blood. Clarence Byron Dalloway is on his third opponent for this for this fight card as well. Does that speak well for uh, his chances? I have no idea. Well, Honestly, what you, you really could have told me that uh, the blue blood Clarence Byron Dalloway was in Bellator right now, and I'd have believed that. <laughs> well, you, could have, you could have been like, he's fighting Bellator Friday night at, in Uncasville, and I would have been like, yeah. Okay, sure, sounds that sounds good. right. That's going to do it for this week's listener mail. If you've got questions, comments, concerns that you want to air to the uh, podcast in future weeks, you know how to do it. You go to the website, comainevent.com, and click the link in the top right-hand corner of the screen that says email the podcast. That'll get you in touch with us. While you're there, you can sign up for the Breakfast of Champions newsletter. That comes out every Friday morning to catch you up on the news and notes that we miss when we're not recording the podcast. Stuff always happens. News always breaks. Tons of changes afoot for the Breakfast of Champions newsletter. If you've been waiting to get in, now is the time because 
you're about to check in on the ground floor of something awesome. Yeah, you don't want to wait until the stock skyrockets on this one. And if you don't like it, it's really easy to unsubscribe. As of right now, though, we are going to go ahead and get started with round number one. Well, Ben, as it turned out, your UFC welterweight champion Tyron Woodley kind of wore Darren Till around the cage like a hat in the main event of UFC 228. Uh, This was kind of a weird fight. Frankly, it played out as though it was going to be the fight that you feared it would be. Kind of a lot of uh, moving around, a lot of trying to gauge the distance, a lot of posturing, and not a ton of action. But Tyron Woodley was the one that was not having that approach. In this bout, he comes out, stings Darren Till with a couple of punching combinations early, eventually knocks him down, uh, locks up this Darce choke on the ground, gets the tap out, four minutes, 19 seconds, uh, into round number two, and then gets his black belt from Dean Thomas when it's all over. Uh, Did you think that this was a feel-good win for Tyron Woodley? Did you think that it was something he deserved? And even though we already talked about it earlier, like, uh, are you like me kind of a sucker for professional fighters getting their black belts in the cage? Yeah, that's always fun. I think this was a necessary win for Tyron Woodley, not only just like getting the win, but showing that he can still go out there and beat somebody's ass and not just win by a little bit. And you're right that that first round, uh, I don't know that you can really blame Woodley too much for it, but it seemed like I think John Anik uh, referred to it as maybe Darren Till pacing himself, which was a nice way of saying that uh-huh. he did almost nothing in that first round. Yep. Like I think up until the final seconds where he opened up a little bit, he had thrown like three strikes the entire first round. He's kind of wondering, like, okay, what's the, the strategy for how you're actually going to win here? And then, though, in the second round, when he tries to get a little more active, he ends up walking right into that Tyron Woodley right hand, and we've seen that that's never a really good idea. Uh, and once Tyron Woodley had him hurt on the ground, really put a beating on him. And, you know, credit to Darren Till for surviving as long as he did on the ground, because there were a couple moments there where it looked like this might be stopped. He was moving just enough. He was maintaining, like, his awareness uh, on the bottom, even when things were getting kind of bad. But then Tyron Woodley locks up that Darce choke, and there's not a whole lot he can do there. Uh, it made me wonder, like, the the response afterwards was, well... Hey, we said before that this was too soon for Darren Till. It was kind of a weird fight to begin with, to, uh, a weird title shot to begin with for him to get it off of coming in and barely beating Stephen Thompson, missing weight, and everybody thought, like, okay, Colby Covington looks like the next in line. He can't make the date, so we just go to Darren Till, next guy on the list, and a lot of people kind of threw their hands up. But then if it gives Tyron Woodley an opportunity to go out there and show that he can finish a fight maybe long run, not such a bad thing. Cause it seems like it got people a little bit reinvigorated about Tyron Woodley as champ. Yeah. Like on the way in, it seemed like maybe people wanted it to be a showcase fight for Darren Till in that right up before fight time, he became the slight betting favorite on the ground uh, there in, in Dallas, Texas. And then as it turned out, it was kind of a showcase fight for Tyron Woodley and one that I think that he both deserved and needed uh, to kind of like bolster his career as, as UFC welterweight champion. Uh, again, it's been highly publicized. He and the UFC have not always seen eye to eye, despite the fact that he's been really, really good uh, over the last few years in this division. Fans have not embraced him in in mass. He does not have a huge pay-per-view following. Uh, and yet he's a really good fighter. He seems like a nice person. 
it, it feels good to me to see him succeed and maybe to see him start to get some of the credit that he deserves as a really, really high-level 170-pound champion, a guy who probably deserves to be on the list now with George St. Pierre and Matt Hughes and guys who kind of defined the welterweight division during their times. I think that there's going to be some more struggles moving forward about exactly what to do with this guy and exactly you know what kind of matchups are going to be uh, make for success at the box office. But uh, at this point, no one can deny that Tyron Woodley is about as good as it gets at 170 pounds and has been, uh, you know, a great champion. The thing that I want to know, if you're Dean Thomas, do you, did, do you think he tossed the black belt in his bag just for this fight? Or has he been carrying that around for a while? Because you look at Tyron Woodley's uh, record, and I believe his last submission win was in Strike Force Challengers. 2009 against Rudy Bears, arm triangle choke. So you think Dean Thomas has been toting that black belt around for a while, just waiting, just waiting for Tyron Woodley to get his submission win? Or did he think, I think we got a good chance to tap out there until I'm taking the black belt? You're saying maybe he had it in the bag for the Demian Maya fight and then was like, well, you did beat a jujitsu master and yet it doesn't feel like the right moment. Also, uh, how important... Is it to go out there and have a big signature win when you're dropping a single next week? Like that's got like that's when you really need to go out, especially because from what he says, maybe I misheard this or I'm remembering it wrong. It sounded like what he said was that the name, the title of the single was "I'm gonna beat your ass" or something along those lines. I mean, if that's true, I'm checking it out. Yeah, I mean, I'm checking it out either way. But it sounded like. You know, maybe if you're dropping a single called I'm going to beat your ass or I will beat your ass or something along those lines, it helps to have recently beat somebody's ass and not just kind of edged out a decision. I've got a really standard idea of what the video could be. Just maybe some highlights. Holding pit bulls. Well, yeah, you want to do that. You want to hold the pit bull. Speed boats. Maybe like crouching in a doorway. Mm -hmm. Anything like that works. We all know uh, how you do it. Hitting a heavy bag. There you go. All right, let's talk a little bit about Darren Till, and then I want to close out this round, maybe talking about the potential for this Colby Covington fight, uh, which may or may not happen. This is Darren Till's first professional loss. He dropped a 17-1-1. In some ways, looked like he had been boosted into this title shot prematurely, that he didn't necessarily deserve to be out there with Tyron Woodley. But like we have said, uh, he also has his sights sights set on the middleweight division. Uh, and some people have posited that maybe he doesn't have to cut all that weight. Maybe he's even better at 185 pounds. What did you take away from this loss in terms of the, you know, how to think about Darren Till? Well, I don't think that, uh, this is necessarily a disastrous thing for Darren Till. I mean, you go in there against a good fighter and he has such a kind of impenetrable front that you struggle to find your way through. And maybe in so doing, you rush right into the right hand and that, that, you know, your whole night changes as a result of that. That can happen. So I don't know if that's so awful. And yeah, if his future is in another division anyway, then he will get that kind of semi-clean slate that guys often get. And with as young as he is, like I, I don't think that we close the book by any means on Darren Till here. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, maybe he actually ends up getting a whole lot out of this, especially not just the actual learning experience of the fight, but now... You know, he's been in there in the main event title fight on a UFC pay-per-view and kind of experienced that and has that to fall back on like that, that experience as a professional. 
uh, which, you know, hey, it wouldn't be unreasonable at all to think three years from now you're seeing Darren Till in a middleweight title fight, and then something like that comes in handy. He's been there before, and he knows how to handle it. Yeah, uh, it seems like the guy's future is probably at 185 pounds. Like most of the intrigue around this event uh, centered on whether or not Darren Till was going to make weight, which I think is never good if that's your main event. Uh, and then he did show up and make 169 like he said he was going to so he could have his uh, cheeky his, can of Coke. So he could have his cheeky can of Coke afterwards. Though, let's be honest, it looked like the skeleton of Darren Till out there making weight. So it is clearly hard for him to make that weight. I think he probably will be better if he goes up to middleweight. He's only 25 years old. He's probably going to physically get larger uh, during the next several years, next handful of years. Uh, I will say, though, at this point with Darren Till coming out of this win or this loss, I'm sorry, against Tyron Woodley, and then the Stephen Thompson decision in the last fight, it seems like at the highest level now, we've seen Darren Till twice. I don't know if you want to consider the Cowboy Cerrone fight before that uh, part of his transition to the highest level. But like, there seems to be kind of a difference between what Darren Till says he's going to do and what Darren Till does against these like real elite welterweights. Cause he talks True. like he's going to go out there and just murder everyone. Yes. And then, you know, the, the, the Steven Thompson fight was a bit of a bit of a listless fight. And then we only had, uh, nine minutes to go on in this championship fight against Tyron Woodley, but at the same time, he didn't look like he had quite figured out what to do out there before it ended. You're saying bringing a lot of excitement prior to the bell is Darren Till? Well, yeah, I mean, he's a young guy. He doesn't have a ton of experience. It just seems like Darren Till in interviews smokes everybody. Yeah. Darren Till in the fight, two fights in a row now, not a ton of stuff happened. Yeah, I mean, it's not like he would be the first fighter to achieve like a kind of impressive level of fame in the UFC when that being the case. I mean, no, it wouldn't. I can think of a couple other notable examples of guys who were good talkers could really get people fired up to see their fights. And yet their style was not that exciting to watch. Is Colby Covington in the fight? Is that what happens now? Is, is that a I fight that means anything to anyone? Is that a bigger fight than Woodley versus Till in terms of like box office? I think so. I, and I think it's the fight that just makes sense. I mean, otherwise, why did you do that whole thing with Colby Covington as interim champion? And, like, he actually, you know, he earned that. He he went out there. He took it to Rafael Dos Anjos. Uh, that fight, both, it seems like it got Tyron Woodley fired up enough where he was like, hey, I actually want to go out there and hurt this guy, which is something that, you know, I think is going to get people excited, more excited than usual to see a Tyron Woodley fight. Uh, you got some culture wars going on there a little bit with Colby Covington and Tyron Woodley. I think you can sell the shit out of that fight, and now feels like the time to do it when coming off of a, a dominant like finish by Tyron Woodley, people are a little more excited to see him. All right, you want to do Are You Fucking Kidding Me? And then we'll move on to round number two. Sure. Ben, are you familiar with this guy, uh, Dustin Ventimiglia? No. Got a big win in his comeback fight in Shamrock FC this past weekend. Okay. One year after, get this, he was crushed by a forklift at his job. Huh. All right. Driving around on a forklift by his own admission, maybe going a little bit too fast. Tries to take a corner. Forklift flips over, lands right on Dustin Ventimiglia. That's not anything you want to have happen. Pretty much they thought he was going to die, like yeah. as you would when a forklift falls over on someone. So I guess this week, the rare positive, are you fucking kidding me? A year after nearly dying by being crushed by a forklift, this guy returns to Shamrock FC, gets a big win via third round rear naked choke. 
Are you fucking kidding me, Dustin Ventimiglia? I guess welcome back. Both to MMA fighting and just life. Fucking kidding me? You're fucking kidding me. You know, I once worked a job uh, where we drove forklifts on a loading dock, and I remember once where a guy tried to drive his forklift into the back of a truck that was being pulled away while the door was still open. And I don't know what he was thinking. Like, maybe he'll just kind of jump it. He thought he was going to do a jump on his forklift? And I don't know what he thought he was going to do once he got in there. Uh, But he he did not make it. The forklift does not have a great jumping ability. It just kind of plummets right off the edge of the loading dock there. The first thing they did was check to see if he was okay, which for the most part he was. Uh, Somehow did not seriously hurt himself. The second thing they did was send him for a drug test immediately. (laughs) Uh, This week, my Are You Fucking Kidding Me? Uh, Did you see that Snoop Dogg was watching this one, UFC 228? I wasn't aware of that, but I'll take your word for it. He was supporting Tyron Woodley uh, and maybe was confused about who Darren Till was because he posted a video to Instagram of him watching Tyron Woodley finish Darren Till while he yelled things like, fuck Donald Trump. Yeah, beat his ass. Fuck Donald Trump. And you're like, do you think do you think that he's the noted Trump supporter Colby Covington? Because he's not that same guy. It's a different person altogether. Or does Snoop Dogg just think like, well, this guy's probably a Trump supporter? Because that's honestly maybe not a terrible bet in uh, with a lot of MMA fighters. But you fucking kidding me? Fucking kidding me? You know, can't be clear on which guy is which. Well, if you told me that Snoop checked in and saw that the plan was to have Tyron Woodley fight Colby Covington and then checked out. And tuned out for a few weeks. Yeah, and then checked back in on fight night. I, I would buy that. I would, I would say that that's probably what happened. You know who I blame? I blame Snoop's boys. Because there had to be somebody in the room who maybe follows MMA a little closer and was like overhearing it and being like, should I say something? Should I tell him? Should I speak up and tell him like maybe this is not the Trump guy? Yeah, someone should have slipped the news update into what I assume is the daily dossier that Snoop gets, like the <laughs> folder that his personal mm-hmm. assistant gives him. Someone should have alerted him that we had a different different uh, fighter out there. He also followed that Instagram post up with like six other posts all in the middle of the night, seemingly from some casino in Las Vegas. It just gives you an idea what he's up to. Not surprised. Anyway, that's going to do it for round number one. We will be right back with round number two. Chad, Nico Montano's week didn't go so great. No. She started out as the UFC women's flyweight champion, the inaugural champion in that division, and without even getting into the cage on Saturday night, ended up losing it. A bad weight cut, kidney shut down. Uh, she said that when she went to the hospital, the doctors told her she'd waited even a half hour longer. She might have been in danger of going into cardiac arrest. A serious medical situation resulting from her attempted weight cut. She doesn't make it onto the scales. She's out of the fight. And the UFC decides, you know what? That's it. We're done here. You're no longer the UFC women's flyweight champ. Going to strip her of the belt, and then we're just going to have Valentina Shevchenko fight somebody, it seems, for uh, a vacant title. Now, for one thing, this is now 50% of the UFC women's divisions where the inaugural champ lost the belt without getting a chance to defend it. Uh... Also, though, 
is this just a reflection of how, like, you know, the UFC reserves the right to do whatever the hell it wants with these belts yeah. at any time? It owns them. Fighters don't own them. Or is this like, hey, this was this is the protocol. This should happen. Well, it's a tough situation with Nico Montano on both sides, really, because uh, if you are the UFC, yeah, I think that you have some right to expect that when you crown a women's flyweight champion that she will defend that title within a reasonable amount of time. But at the same time, you just look at what Nico Montano has been through since winning that title. Uh, a lot of health stuff, you know, she had to, uh, I believe, have her tonsils out. She had tonsillitis, like severe tonsillitis, which when you were talking about Lyme disease, it's kind of the same uh, kind of diagnose, diagnostic thing. Like it takes people a really long time to figure out why people are feeling so sick that they need to have their tonsils out, especially as an adult. I think it's kind of a... Uh, a serious situation. So she had been through this kind of like physical ordeal. Uh, and then she shows up to, to fight and we'll frankly, probably never know, at least not for a while as to exactly what happened with the weight cut. I know people will tell you like if a fighter doesn't make weight, it's unprofessional, et cetera, et cetera. This sounded like a super serious situation. Uh, I don't feel like I'm going to cast stones at her or her team as as to like what happened here with her inability to make 125 uh, pounds. And the UFC wants to strip her of the title, which I don't know, man. Like in, in some ways, I think that you can understand why they would want to do that. And in other ways, there's a real big difference here in how the UFC handles personnel decisions from one instance to another and since it's a company that has always existed without any kind of policy, I think that that hurts the UFC a lot because you see them like strip Nico Montano and depending on where you are in terms of mindset, you can either like think that the UFC was super justified or that Montano got a raw deal. And I'm not here to tell you that either side is, is really right. Well, it seems more like a raw deal if you look at it kind of big picture. Right. Like like you talked about, like she, she comes off the tough tournament and part of her defense when she posted her statement to Instagram about it was like, hey, you go through the tough tournament and your body is kind of out of whack after that because yeah. of all the times you have to make weight in a short amount of time. Then uh, she's the champion. She's having to deal with these illnesses. She has surgery. And we cannot forget that she was kind of rushed into this fight, like there was the the whole thing where, uh, you know, Ariel Hawani floating, like the UFC is getting mad at her, getting frustrated with her, uh, her uh, reluctance to schedule a, a title fight here. And her argument there was like, hey, I just got out of surgery. Uh, I, you know, I need a little more time before I can know exactly when I can book it. But maybe feeling the pressure, she goes ahead. She agrees to this fight at this date. Uh, and if maybe her body's not ready when she goes in there and tries to put it through the rigors of the weight cut. Like, I think if you look at that in total, you get a little more sympathy for her. Right, yeah. Uh, and yet I also, in a way, understand like why the UFC might be feeling like, all right, we got to move on with this division. Uh, you know, we need to have a, a title defense if this division is going to gain any steam. But it also did seem like the UFC was maybe thinking, look, Valentina Shevchenko is going to end up as the champ. So like get out of the way, let that happen. And let's proceed from there one way or another. Uh, but it did also, like Danny Downs and I talked about it in our trading shots thing, and it made me just feel like this is why you want to have some kind of like protocol for these right, yeah. so that we don't wonder like, okay, what's going to happen? Because, you know, Max Holloway doesn't make it to his fight and, uh, you know, or somebody else like, like say Conor McGregor 
Or say uh, Khabib. He, is, he has had a history of weight-cutting issues. Say uh, he gets ready for this bout with Conor McGregor, and his weight cut goes poorly. He has to go to the hospital, doesn't make it onto the scale. Are you going to tell me that we're going to go ahead and say he's not the lightweight champion anymore? Right. Well, and lots of people have had their belts longer without defending it than Nico Montano has had the women's flyweight title. And when you have this situation where we just feel like the UFC can willy-nilly do whatever it likes from situation to situation, it's like you can take your own philosophy and just impose it on every decision. Like if you want to support the UFC, you can, if you think that the UFC uh, is wrong in a lot of these instances, like you can uh, l- allow that to color this decision as well. And I feel like if it just had some protocols in place where it's like, all right, if you don't, if you win the title and you don't defend it within this number of days, you get stripped. Uh, it would clear up a lot of that because you would be able to, there would be some clarity in, in, you know, why the UFC, strips Nico Montano and apparently seems mad at her. But like, for example, uh, when Jeremy Stevens gets arrested on the day of his fight in Minneapolis a few years ago on an old assault beef, like the UFC couldn't have been more in favor of Jeremy Stevens. And Dana White went out and said, we're going to get this guy out of jail and he's going to come out here and fight tonight. Just like, what? Like those, it's just... When well, you don't have the policy, it opens up those kind of comparisons, man. You, and like, you don't want that. The unifying thing there is the UFC's attitude that the show must go on because that's how the UFC makes the money. I mean, you, you know, we've seen that pop up in a bunch of different ways where you test positive for drugs before the fight in a way that screws up the fight. Going to be super mad at you. Nate Marquardt, John Jones, those guys. You do it after the fight when it's your problem. Eh, not quite as mad at you because we already made the money off of right. the, the fight going on. Yeah. So I mean, or if you're Brock Lesnar, for example, right? You, like, don't, you don't you don't test positive till after the fight. Ah, uh, you know what? We're not that mad. Yeah, we're in fact we're so not mad you can come back and fight for the heavyweight title yeah. as soon as you get this shit cleared up. Uh, so like, I mean, I think that's the kind of common denominator there as far as the the UFC goes. Uh, it did make me wonder though, like, okay, so we went through that whole ultimate fighter tournament and you crown this champion. Yep. Then she misses one date and you're like, screw it. Not the champion anymore. Right. So that was a kind of all for nothing is what you're telling me. But, I mean, and don't say it was for TV ratings cause nobody watched it. Yeah. Uh, and, but I, I guess what I'm wondering is, will people care if they already had it in their minds? Well, Valentina Shevchenko going to go out there and murder her anyway. I mean, you looked at the odds for that one and it was, like the most lopsided title defense I think that we'd ever seen in the UFC. And so people will be like, all right, maybe we just skip to the inevitable next step, which was Valentino uh, Shevchenko fighting somebody else for the women's flyweight title. Yeah, I think that's part of it. But I also hope that this is like not the last we hear of Nico Montano. You know what I mean? Like, I hope that she, even if they do a different fight, if they're able to put together like Shevchenko uh, versus Yejchik or something like that, something that would be legitimately an interesting and big fight, at 125 pounds. I hope that like Montano gets the opportunity to like come back and, and try to reclaim her title or maybe have a fight just to make sure that she can uh, reliably make the weight and then fight for the title. If she wins that uh, it would be real unfair and real uh, for lack of a better word, shitty. If th- this is like the, the culmination of Nico Montano's UFC run, because uh, while you kind of understand that the UFC wants to have a women's flyweight champion that is going to defend the title so they can put the gold on the belt, it also seems like a raw deal for her, man, especially since she's been through so much health stuff uh, and had such a, a tough road that I would really like to see her come back and, and get another opportunity, frankly. Yeah, yeah. Do you think that this hurt uh, 
viewership for the event at all? Do you think people thought like, because it didn't seem like people were super fired up about seeing this particular fight anyway. It just felt like, okay, well, there's another title fight and then it gets yanked off the card. Do you think a lot of people went, all right, that's it. It's no longer pay-per-view worthy when it ended up being very pay-per-view worthy? No, I think that like, this isn't a fight that we, or this isn't a, a card that we expected to have a huge buy rate anyway. I feel like if you if you bought UFC 228, you were probably kind of like a hardcore MMA fan. You were probably going to buy it anyway. Maybe you had a keen interest in watching Shevchenko versus Montano, but I think you probably still tuned in uh, to watch Tyron Woodley versus Darren Till. And as it turned out, you know you got uh, four stoppages out of uh, five fights on the main card. So like, eh, turned out to be a, a a fun night. Like I don't think anybody was hanging around at, at, you know, quarter after midnight or whenever this thing ended being like, man, I wish there was one more fight on this thing. Uh, but it was like 1030 in our time and not bad at all. Right. Yeah. Uh, so I don't think anyone like w- w- really wanted to have an- another fight on there. I don't think anyone missed it, but at the same time, like I said, uh, I hope that we get to do this fight at some point. Anyway, that's going to do it for round number two. We will be right back with round number three. been interesting times afoot for the women's strawweight division. You had two pretty good women's strawweight fights on this UFC 228 card uh, as the the featured prelim on FX, Tatiana Suarez uh, puts a beat down on Carla Esparza over three rounds, ends up winning via TKO uh, just about 27 seconds before the end of the third. And then as the co-main event on the actual pay-per-view, Jessica Andrade pretty much just blitzes Carolina Kovalkiewicz. Uh, those two, like I like to say, put a lot of living into a minute and 58 seconds before Andrade wins with with the kind of one-punch knockout you seldom see in this division. Uh, so you got two, like, viable contenders for Rose Namajunas' 115-pound title at this point. Uh, and also, another thing that I kind of want to discuss during this round I don't know if you saw last week, Trevor Whitman went on Ariel Helwani's show and talked about how uh, Rose Namajunas seems like she's still somewhat traumatized from the Conor McGregor bus attack. I believe Trevor Whitman says she doesn't really leave the house. So like interesting stuff all over the the map at 115 pounds right now. Let's start first with uh, Suarez versus Esparza. Uh, You know, Carla Esparza had gotten it rolling a little bit here, despite the fact uh, that she dropped a real close decision. Uh, in her last fight uh, to Claudia Gadella, UFC 225. Uh, she comes in here against Tatiana Suarez, obviously uh, Esparza, the former champion. And Tatiana Suarez looks every bit the top prospect that she is made out to be. What's your takeaway from this fight? Yeah, I mean, to go out there and to not only maul uh, an opponent like Carlos Esparza, but to maul her that way. I mean, you remember... What Carla Esparza did to Rose Namajunas back in the uh, Ultimate Fighter finale, where it was like, you know, that was kind of her approach was she'll just go out there, get you down the ground, kind of suffocate you there. And to go out there and to be able to just like, like basically steamroll her from start to finish. And this is one, it's kind of mean to get a, like a, a TKO finish in the last 30 seconds of the third round. Yeah. Cause it's like you were hold if you're color as far as I guess you're holding out hope, like, well, I'll, I can at least go the distance. And then you take all that beating and you still don't, you don't get even that kind of like honor 
you still get stopped. That's impressive on itself. And then she gets on the mic and has a little bit of that swagger. And you're like, okay, that's a good way to help people remember your name. Go out there, take it to a former champion, and then act like you're already the next champion. Um, and I can see how maybe she went back to the locker room after that one feeling like, all right, that really took care of that. And then Andrade goes out there and lands that one punch bomb. And it's like, okay, maybe, maybe she stepped back in front of you in, in the line with that one. Yeah. Uh, but to me, it's a good problem to have if you're the UFC, because you can just, you can say, all right, Andrade is next, but, uh, you know, Tatiana Suarez right behind her in line. You got a whole lot of fun stuff you can do here. Yeah, and like frankly, not a problem that we have had in this division. No, a lot. So it feels good to have a couple of viable contenders on their way up, and kind of interesting that Andrade is kind of like the perennial contender who's been around and had some big fights and has just come up a little bit short in her championship opportunities. And Suarez is the new kid on the block who's, uh, you know, shooting up the charts, number one with the bullet. Yet another one of these like twenty-seven-year-old youths that the UFC has that just seems like they are unbelievably talented and frankly has a, a an engaging personal story also since she was uh you know a, a real high level uh youth wrestler and was had her eye on the olympics and then got thyroid cancer and so got uh got that dream sidetracked i believe she also tore her labrum at some point so she's been out for a while but now she's she's full speed ahead in her mixed martial arts career and is 4 and 0 now in the UFC with wins now over Alexa Grasso and uh, Carlo Esparza in her last two. So uh, Car- uh, Tatiana Suarez, and again, another one of these people with this skill set where she's just has these wicked takedowns that, that you feel like could be a problem for absolutely anyone, including either Andrade or Naba Yunus. So it will be interesting to see where that goes. Uh, Jessica Andrade, Ben, when this knockout over Karolina Kovalkiewicz, I thought an apt comparison by the UFC broadcast team. I think it was Joe Rogan who said she looked like a young Vanderlei Silva. Yeah, I thought that was an apt comparison too. And usually I kind of get mad at those comparisons because usually it seems like uh, maybe we get caught up in the moment at times. And, uh, but she did, she did kind of resemble just the, the aggression. uh, And even that, that knockout came from, you could feel Carolina, Carolina Kovalkiewicz just like, let me just get her off of me. Like, yeah. Give me a second to breathe and just kind of trying to create some distance for herself. And she ends up getting caught with that right hand. And you're like, yeah, that does feel like, like Vanderlei Silva should be uh, complimented by that comparison of anything. Because yeah, I mean, it wasn't just like wild and crazy with a whole lot of like openings. It was still like technical aggression, but that kind that where you feel like, man, you're not going to be able to stand up under this pressure for very long. And she wasn't. Yeah. Andrade, uh, surprisingly, here's the shocker of today's co-main event podcast, younger than Tatiana Suarez at 26 years old. And yet she's been around the block a bunch. Uh, she lost to Joanna Jacek in her championship opportunity back at UFC 211, but is three and zero since then. Uh, and would be a super interesting fight. Don't you think to have her fight Rose Nama Yunus, uh, especially as a, a, a first title defense for Rose after, uh, kind of proven it two times in a row against the Ajaychik. Yeah. I don't mean, I don't see how you have a bad fight come out of that. Yeah. Uh, just style wise. Uh, also one of my favorite things that I learned while writing a, a definitive ranking of all the nicknames available on the USC 228 card, uh, Jessica Andrade's nickname, which I'm not even going to try to pronounce cause it's in Portuguese, but it translates to pile driver. 
Oh, okay. Yeah, that's a good nickname. And she got it by doing the pile driver to someone in a jujitsu tournament, her first jujitsu tournament, which she didn't really know the rules. Uh, and so she totally did a pile driver on somebody, which she can't do in a jujitsu tournament. And so she got disqualified immediately. And she was kind of like, what? I, I thought that that was fine. And her teammates were all like, okay, that's awesome. And from now on, you're the pile driver. <laughs> you know how we frequently talk about Karolina Kovalkiewicz's calm pre-fight demeanor? Yes. How she's over there just kind of leaning in against the cage, not giving a care. Uh, I felt like that effect was ruined when you cut across the cage and you see Jessica Andrade standing over there. It's like if you imagine, like I always make the comparison, Kovalkiewicz looks like she's waiting for a taxi. Like she's just not concerned. She yeah. knows it's going to show up and she's going to gonna take that ride. I feel like if I saw Karolina Kovalkiewicz waiting for a taxi and then I saw Jessica Andrade also on the street, I would be like, Carolina, look out! Because <laughs> Andrade is just over there looking like she is going to fucking murder someone. Yeah. And then she did. Yeah. Pretty much. All right, let's talk a couple minutes about Rose Namajunas. Did you see this interview with Trevor Whitman where he talked about how she's still, uh, at least allegedly, according to him, having some uh, some fallout from being on the bus that Conor McGregor threw a, a hand truck through the window? I read about it, did not see it. Yeah. Uh, it's surprising, I think, to a lot of people that maybe Namajunas would still be feeling quite that tra- traumatized about it. But at the same time, I feel like this is one of those situations where uh, the MMA community kind of acts ugly about stuff like where we get mad at someone that they have to go to the hospital so that they don't die from their weight cut. And also that when we find out Rose Namajunas is still like maybe feeling depressed and hanging around at her house because she had this traumatic, violent uh, event in her life. We're like, well, that's fucking bullshit. (laughs) Yeah. It's just like a weird reaction that we have to stuff like that. It is. And people should knock it off. Yeah. I hope Rose Namajunas is all right. And I hope that she is able to carry on being the, uh, the strawweight champion here because she had, you know, one of the, the feel good story of, of 2017 into early 2018 by taking the title off Yejacek and then, you know, winning the rematch in, in even more dominant fashion. And now you have two uh, intriguing title contenders, I think, for Rose Namajunas, which kind of makes it feel like the, we've turned the page a little bit in this division. And it's it's Namajunas's division. And we're excited to see what happens with these two. Uh, like super different stylistic challengers. And then, you know, so to hear that she still is like having some, some fallout and some trauma from that event, like it's worrisome to me, like, cause you, you hope that a, she's okay. And B that she can still be the, the kind of like uh dominating champion that we thought that she was going to be when she beat you at Yeah. You want to do just saying stuff? Yeah. Is this round number three? It's round number three. It is. Wow. Shot right through this thing. Yeah. How about that? Time flies when you're having fun. I wouldn't go that far. All right. Let's do just saying stuff and then we'll get out of here for this week. Ben, what is your just saying stuff? So we talked about Nico Montano being stripped of the women's flyweight title. You know how she found out about that according to her? I do, but I'm going to, I'm going to let you finish. Instagram. Huh? I'm just saying this is not the first time we've encountered an issue like this where a fighter finds out pretty important information about their own career through a third party. How hard would it be for the UFC to just make this part, at least part of a policy where if you're going to strip somebody's title or fire them or something big like that, you tell them first before you start telling other people. Yeah. I'm just saying that that doesn't seem like that big a ask. Yeah. And yet keeps happening. Almost like, almost like that should be part of the policy. Like part of the protocol, call the champ. 
Yeah. Tell them that they're not the champ anymore. That's right. That Just seems saying. like maybe the least you could do. Yeah. Ben, did you see these pictures that made it look like Colby Covington was out visiting the troops this weekend uh, during UFC 228? I saw some pictures of him with some servicemen holding the no. belt, and they were like, oh, man, so awesome to meet the champ. I did not see that. I was thinking to myself, I'm just saying, do you think that anybody even tries to explain to those guys like who Colby Covington actually is when he makes these like personal appearances with the belt? Or do you think that people are just like, yeah, this guy's the UFC champ. Sure, yeah. why not? It's a UFC like, guy. He's got the belt, right? Go out and go out and take some pictures, yeah. Colby. And you know who I bet is really pissed off about that is like the one soldier in the group who's like a big MMA fan, so he knows all the shit about what's going on. And he tries, he's like, no, guys, like he's the interim champ, but they like stripped him kind of, but he's gonna fight the winner. But like, you know what? Never mind. Yeah, and everybody's, go have your fun. Everybody's looking at that guy like he's the crazy. Yeah, one. like right, he's being the asshole. That, like you know, one can just enjoy meeting the champ. I'm just saying. Just saying. That's gonna do it for this week's co-main event podcast. We will be back next week. I assume we will talk some a little bit about uh, what happens at UFC Fight Night 136 from Moscow. We will start to look ahead to stuff like Jimmy Manawa against Tiago Santos in the main event of Fight Night 137. Frankly, October is gonna be off the chain. Lots of stuff happening in October, so you'll want to stick around, frankly. Uh, as for right now, though, we are done. We are through. We are out. You want to tell me uh, if this is a, a real guy on the upcoming Moscow fight card or not? Okay. I've been looking at it for this hour, so I should be familiar with what's happening. Magomed Ankalov. Real guy? Fake guy. That is a fake guy. Real guy. Ah! Stefan Sekulich. Also a fake guy. Real guy. Ah! Uh, Ramazan Kabbalah. See, that's a fake guy. Fake guy. See, you just keep saying fake guy. Eventually, you're going to get one right. Did you Merab say, Davishvili. Did you even say Khalid Murtazaliev, who CB Dalloway is fighting? Khalid Murtazaliev. That's a fake guy.